I have hairy cell leukemia, a rare, slow-growing cancer of the blood and bone marrow. After I was diagnosed, I looked for stories of people who have survived cancer and dealt with chronic illnesses. Finding online communities and talking to people who knew what I was going through meant so much. It meant that I wasn't alone. At the same time, it's been really difficult as a young woman with HCL to find studies and information and research that could help me to make treatment decisions. I'm a rare case of a rare disease. Of the 600 HCL cases diagnosed in the United States each year, the vast majority are men, and the median age of diagnosis is 50. I was 24 when I was diagnosed. During the past few months, I've kept notes on my day-to-day experiences and conversations. And now, as I get ready to start my treatment at a clinical trial at the NIH, it feels important to talk about the factors that went into this decision, hopefully to provide some context and some information for other HCL patients out there looking to make similar decisions. July 22nd. I had a doctor's appointment to discuss treatment options with Dr. A. My mom came with me, which was great. It was informative. She's really nice. She told me that the treatment she would recommend is cladribine. I had been reading up on cladribine and rituxan a combination treatment, which was in a couple of clinical trials, and I said, could we look at that? She went to look it up right away. She came back with printouts about the trials at MD Anderson and NIH. She said she could also maybe do the treatment off of trial here. August 1st. I had decided to do the clinical trial at the NIH, where newly diagnosed patients are treated with clodribine and rituxan. A lot of factors went into this decision, and once again, height can help explain some of the medical stuff behind it. Let me preface this by saying that Hike is not an oncologist. So for any hairy cell patients out there, take this with a grain of salt and make sure to talk to your doctor about your own treatment decisions. We were looking at treatment decisions and cladribine is the standard of care. It works really well, like we said, 90% of people respond to it. Can you talk a little bit about why, even though cladribine is pretty effective, that makes sense to do both. Yeah, my perspective on it is that these, they're called purine analogs. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the DNA bases are broken up, there's four of them, right? And they're broken up into two sets of two, purines and pyrimidines. So these drugs are purine analogs, which mm-hmm. means they're, they're like the purines, they mimic the purines. And a lot of cancer drugs sort of act in this way. They look like a component in DNA synthesis, so they're able to either block the normal enzymes or be incorporated into DNA and basically abort synthesis. So fast dividing cells that have to uh, copy all their DNA very quickly are very susceptible to these. And generally, cancer is faster dividing than normal cells, right? So the nice thing about cladribine is that it is it's sort of a pro-drug. It's mm-hmm. not exactly the active form of the drug. It has to be modified. And the enzyme that modifies it is expressed at higher levels in lymphocytes. So in a way, it targets lymphocytes. It targets the cancer cell. So it has some inherent specificity. So when people stumbled upon it, I mean, part of it is just great science and part of it is always good fortune. And it's just good fortune for, you know, people who have hairy cell all over the world that that this was discovered. Yeah. 
So we talked about cladribine and how it kind of works, mm-hmm. right? So it it interferes with DNA synthesis and maybe even inserts into non-replicating DNA and causes the cells to die. What rituxan is, so uh, it has two names. Rituxan is sort of the, the trade name or brand name. And the generic name is rituximab. Mm-hmm. Anything that ends in mab refers to a monoclonal, that's the M, antibody, mm-hmm. the AB. So rituximab is a monoclonal antibody that is targeted to CD20. And what CD20 is, is B-cell specific protein that's expressed on the surface of B-cells. Rituximab, when it, when it binds to these cells, ends up causing their demise for a number of reasons. And because many, many lymphomas are B-cells, or yeah. B-cell lymphomas, or B-cell origin, Rituximab is widely used for, for many things and parts of many uh, chemotherapy uh, regimens for many different lymphomas. And it's one of the things people think of right away if, if there's a potential chance that it could be applicable mm-hmm. because it's been used so much, it's known that it's relatively safe, and it's proven its effectiveness in many different scenarios. So this is a B-cell a B cell cancer, right? So you, could, you would think right away, hey, what about rituximab? Will this be effective? I think there were trials that even tried to look at rituximab alone. Yeah. And what those showed was that it worked fairly well, but it was certainly not superior to cladribine and may have even been worse. Then the next thought is, well, what if we combine them? And the thing that I thought was the most intriguing was that with cladribine alone, if you treat with cladribine, the patient might go you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years uh, without any clinical relapse, meaning they don't have reduced blood counts of normal blood components. So their white count doesn't go down, their platelets don't go down, their red blood cells don't go down. But if you look carefully, the cancer cells are still there. So for whatever reason, they're not dividing aggressively or they're just there at very low levels and it's taking them a long time to build back up. But what was the most intriguing thing to me was that if you combined the two drugs and you tried to, to measure those rare cancer cells, you were much less likely to find them than cladribine yeah. alone. And so when you talk about remission, there's many types of remission. Mm-hmm. And any test that you do, there's some sensitivity. Right, your test can only pick up 50 cells, or it can only detect it if there's 100 cells, or it can only detect it if there's 10,000 cells, whatever the number is, right? Mm-hmm. So patients can be clinically in remission, but if you look, you'll see the cells pathologically, meaning if you look under the microscope, you, you'll see the hairy cells. You might look under the microscope and not see the hairy cells, but if you do a molecular test, if you use very sensitive techniques like flow cytometry or molecular tests to measure, to look for the presence of those mutations, you'll detect them. And so that's more sensitive than a pathological remission. That's a molecular remission. So you may be negative for all of those and still have some cancer cells. You might just be below the level of detection of the molecular tests even, right? But in my mind, if you're going for a true cure, you have to try to eliminate every cell, every cancerous cell, right? And the other major thing is that what cancer does is it divides. And as it divides, and over time, 
and because it's dysregulated to begin with, it's going to accumulate more and more mutations. Mm -hmm. And so over time, the one cell that gave rise to the to the to your cancer clone, as it were, over time, that's not going to be a clonal population anymore. That's going to be a heterogeneous population. So one of the reasons cancer treatment probably fails is that the cancer, by the time we detect it, is heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. So if, if you try to attack it with an effective drug, there just is going to happen to be 2% of cells that have, for whatever reason, developed resistance to that drug already. Not that you're, you're driving resistance, but you're selecting for it. So you'll kill the 98%. The 2% that, for whatever reason, had a mutation, an additional mutation that made them resistant, now those will grow. Yeah. And the next time you try to treat them, this is just a general principle in cancer, right? Yeah. And it relies on the basic principle that over time, you're going to have more and more heterogeneity in your cancer cell population. So to treat it with cladribine and then wait and, and maybe have a relapse 15 years down the road or something, my thought is at that time, those cells are going to be more heterogeneous. Yeah. So why not hit it with everything at first when you're most likely to have a, a more homogeneous population? you have a higher chance mm-hmm. of a cure. Now, there's there's no real data or proof behind that. That's just... Sort of the logic. Of yeah, just not just thinking about the biology, Yeah. thinking about what we know about cancer, and, you know, partly intuition, too. August 3rd was my birthday. I turned 25. Since then, there's been a lot of adjusting to this new reality. I can't say enough what a huge difference it's made having a great support system during this time. Now I'm getting ready to fly to DC with Hoku. We're going a couple days early so we can have a fun day in the city. I've never been and he's going to show me around. It's special because he has family there but hasn't had the chance to visit in over a decade. Treatment will be a five-day course of cladribine, followed by rituxan once weekly for eight weeks. I've been telling my friends this isn't like movie chemo. I won't lose my hair, and I likely won't have severe side effects. My biggest concern is that my last complete blood count showed a neutrophil count of 0.5, which means I'm already quite immunosuppressed. So I'll probably be spending a lot of my time indoors, watching TV, reading, making art, and probably pouring a lot of my thoughts into this podcast. If I feel up to it, I plan to update once weekly. So follow along to keep up on how I'm doing. If there's something you'd like to share, send me a message at AnnaAndTheHairyCells.com. I'd love to hear from you.